Well, as they slide out, let me encourage you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one that we've provided under the chair there. And in the Bibles we provide, it's page 974. 974. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm also a beloved Red Sox fan. We got any Red Sox fans out there? Come on. Who was at the parade yesterday? We got some paraders. Who, who caught it on TV? I was not there. Caught a little bit of it on TV. There was one sign that jumped out to me. Did you guys see it? It said, 11 years, eight parades. This kid there, 11 years old, and has been to eight parades. I mean, he's just been spoiled living here in Boston. But as I watched on TV, I mean, it was packed out from Fenway all the way to the Museum of Science. I mean, deep, I think one estimate was, was two million people or so. I don't know how they determined that. Um, but scores and scores of fans lined up to see their beloved socks. I want you to imagine another line with me, though. This line is a line that wraps all the way around the equator. And this line dwarfs the line we saw yesterday for the Red Sox parade. You see, the distance from Fenway to the Museum of Science is roughly three miles. But the line that wraps around the equator of the earth is, is, is close to 25,000 miles. And on this line, I want you to picture with me orphans lined up shoulder by shoulder all the way around this line. That line could not contain all the orphans in the world today. 153 million orphans in the world today. You heard me right, 153 million. And yet the trend today seems to be that adoption is cool, right? I mean, when you turn to Hollywood, isn't that what we see often on the front magazine? I mean, you've got people like Sandra Bullock, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, Julian Michaels, Madonna, Nicole Kidman, Meg Ryan, and I had to delete some of these names. The list goes on and on of Hollywood stars that are known for adoption. But as I appeal to you today, I'm not going to say look at them and follow their example, though I could, and, and I'm I, I praise that. I'm glad that adoption is happening. But I want to point out, Russell Moore, who's wrote a book, you can check it out back here, called Adopted for Life. He says, without a theological foundation, adoption is seen as mere charity. Is that what we're after when we think of orphan care and adoption? Just mere charity? I want to say there's got to be some theological foundation. Even more than this, you guys know who Richard Dawkins is? Richard Dawkins wrote a book in 2006 called The God Delusion. He's one of the leading atheists in America. He also wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. As we think of the secularization of America, Darwinian naturalism and evolution is not going to fare well for adoption. Because what does that say? It says you do things that are going to promote your own gene. And Richard Dawkins acknowledges this. Let me read an excerpt. He says this, in most cases, we should probably regard adoption, however touching it may seem, as a misfiring of a built-in rule. 
This is because the generous female is doing her own genes no good by caring for the orphan. She's wasting time and energy which she could be investing in the lives of her own kin, particularly future children of her own. He continues saying this. I've got a quote here for you. He says, adoption is a double whammy. Not only do you reduce or at least fail to increase your own reproductive success, but you improve someone else's. So what is going to drive us to pursue these 153 million people? We need a theological vision and foundation that will do that. And, and I believe if, if what Galatians 4 teaches us today is true about God, Jesus, and this world, that changes everything and also provides a foundation for how we are to go about and pursue adoption today. So the main point that I want you to get today is this. We should care for orphans as a way to display God's adoption of us through the redemption found in Christ. That's what we're after today. And the plan is twofold. First of all, we're going to go to Galatians 4, and we're going to draw out some truths that can teach us about God's adoption of us. And then, the latter part of the sermon, we're going to spend some time drawing some implications for what can God's adoption of us teach us for how we should participate in adoption. So going to Galatians. I'm going to start reading actually in chapter 3, beginning in verse 25 to set the context. Galatians 3, verse 25. Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This sets the stage for what we're going to discuss today. You see, Paul has argued that we are now sons of God through faith, and if sons, we are heirs according to the promise. He picks up on that beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would open our eyes and our ears, not to just physically hear, but these eyes and ears of our hearts, that we would truly hear your word. God, that you would teach us, that you would give us a, a theological vision and foundation 
first of all, to see your love displayed for us in adoption, and then how we can display this extravagant love in our participation of adoption and orphan care. God, we pray your spirit to work and move to that end. In Christ's name, amen. The first truth that I want you to get today, and we see in verses one through three is this. We all once were slaves. Now let me get something out of the way. You see in this text the continual use of the masculine sons. Now, for some of you, do you stumble over this? You're a woman here, and you see, I'm a, I'm a son of God. Shouldn't we translate this sons and daughters of God? I just want you to think through this for a second. In the culture of the New Testament, adopted daughters didn't have the same rights as adopted sons. So if the translation would have been sons and daughters, it wouldn't have meant as much. So here's what I want to encourage you today. When you hear you are sons, hear that you are bumped up, not relegated down. It's an honor to you in this analogy to be included as sons. But I'm fine with talking about sons and daughters of Christ. I mean, what did we just read in Galatians 3.28? Look back there. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. When we come to the gospel, the distinctions break down, and we are all equal and one in Christ. So I just want you to hear that. Don't let that be a stumbling block for you in this text today. We all once were slaves. So we see Paul start out in verses 1 and 2, and he's describing an analogy. And the analogy he's describing is, is he's describing a situation where there's a boy in a home of wealth. But this boy, um, who is legally the heir of the family estate, he's still a minor, and he lives under rules very much like a slave. He has guardians and managers who supervise him until the date set by the father. Do you see that? Even though he's an heir, he says, as long as he's a child, he's no different than a slave. A slave has no legal rights. This child, even though he's the heir of the estate, is still a minor, and he has guardians over him until the date set by the father. That's Paul's main point. The child has no legal rights. This condition is no different than being a slave. But then he uses that analogy, and he applies it to the context there in Galatians. Look at verse 3. He begins... In the same way. See what he's doing? He's painted this picture, and then he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When they were under the law, their guardian, they were no different than enslaved. In fact, he says, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This phrase here, Elementary principles shows up four times in the entire New Testament. It's, there have been many debates over what is the exact meaning of this phrase, but it seems it's got to have some connection with what we've just recently read in chapter 3. So I'm just going to go back in, in verse 24. I want you to hear some of the similar analogy. Actually, verse 23 says, Now before faith, in chapter 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive. Under the law. They were, they were captive. They were slaved under the law. They were imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might 
be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer a guardian. What Paul's talking about in some sense relates to that. I would agree with Richard Longenecker, a New Testament scholar who says that the meaning is that it was the Mosaic law and its condemnatory and supervisory functions that comprised, comprised the Jews' basic principles of religion. They were enslaved under the law. What did the law do? Paul Tanner just shared it with us last week. Did the law produce a righteousness? No. What did the law do? Go back in verse 22 of chapter 3. Actually, I'll start in verse 21. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Tanner talked last week about how the law is like a mirror. It shows us our sin. You see all the requirements of the law and it's condemnatory in the fact that you see that and you realize, I can't keep it. It shows me my sin and at the same time, it points me to Christ. The law is, is a path, and at the end of that path is a rock, and the rock is Christ, and you ought to embrace the, the rock. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He is our righteousness. But he says, you were enslaved to the law because the law would not produce righteousness. It just showed you your sin. Which leads me to this truth. God adopted us from a very bad situation. None of us were desirable or likely candidates for God's grace. Tanner read in Deuteronomy 7, why did God choose Israel? He says, it wasn't because you were so great in number. And he says, in fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. The point of God's choosing Israel was not because they were great or desirable. It was to show God's grace in the same way. We were ugly. We were evil. We were rebellious and it's true, we were enemies of God. You know what Ephesians 2.3 says? Ephesians 2.3 even says, we were by nature children of wrath. We were not children of God. We were children destined for wrath. God adopted us out of that. Now what's Paul doing? Paul's preparing us to see that God is the primary actor in the drama of redemption. This child who was under guardians is, is going to be under guardians until what? The date set by the Father. When we come to verse 4, we're going to see God is the one who is setting the times and the dates of all of history. And that leads us to our second truth, which is this. Jesus became a servant so that we might become sons. Look at verse 4 in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. First of all, we see the time of the sun's coming. This phrase, but when the fullness of time 
had come. Do you realize that Jesus is the culmination and focus of all of God's redemptive activity? From the very beginning, Genesis 1 to the end, Jesus is its focus. It makes sense that he is also the divider of all world history, right? A.D., B.C., Jesus is what it's all about. Not only providentially was this a part of the plan of God, we see at the time of Jesus come that conditions were ripe. Just to set the stage, the time of the coming of Christ. Anybody heard of the Pax Romana? There was a time of peace and stability at the time when Jesus came that enabled the rapid spread of the gospel. Not only that, Roman roads. This phrase, all roads lead to Rome. The road system provided relatively easy travel and the way for the gospel to spread all the way to Rome. In fact, go read Acts. Where does Acts end? The gospel has spread all the way to Rome by the end of Acts. Third, you've got the Greek language. Greek was the language of commerce throughout the Roman Empire. It provided the universal vehicle for the spread of the gospel. Its importance is seen not only in the fact that the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. The New Testament was written in Greek. And then finally, Jewish messianic expectations. I mean, go read through the Gospels. What were they hailing Jesus as? He's the king, right? They wanted to set him up as king. The, the, the many different strands of Judaism of the day all sustained some vibrant hope that a Messiah was coming. I mean, the end of the Old Testament had prepared the way. They were in exile. They came out of exile, but yet the promises of God had not been fulfilled. They were eager. They were expecting. I mean, the way the Old Testament ends, go read 2 Chronicles 36 in the Hebrew Bible. That's the last book of the Hebrew Bible. The last words of the Old Testament say, let him go up. There was an expectation of a coming Messiah. But not only that, we see here Paul describing the status of the son. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In those words, God sent forth his son. Implicit is eternal deity. God didn't send a substitute. God came himself. I mean, this is what John's getting at in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go read through John chapter 1. We see that God sent himself, his Son. Not only that, we see Jesus was not only God, we also see that he was born of a woman. Jesus was a human. Paul's highlighting this. We see, we see the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. He experienced all the fears, all the trials, all the temptations that are common to man, yet he was without sin. But he wasn't just any man. He was a Jewish man. What's the next phrase say? Born of woman, born under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He attended the synagogue. He faithfully fulfilled all the demands of the law. Hey, just reflect with me. In Galatians 3, 13. Tanner preached that a few weeks ago. What's Galatians 3.13 say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How could Jesus 
redeem us from the curse of the law if he wasn't under the curse himself. Implicit in Galatians 3.13 is that Christ perfectly kept the law. He wasn't under a curse so that he could free us from the curse. So Jesus was God. He was born of a woman. He was man, but, but he was a Jewish man, and he came and he fulfilled every aspect of the law. And then we come to not just the status of the son, we see the purpose and the result of the son's coming. The purpose and result of the son's coming. Look again in verse 5. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send his son? To redeem. The purpose of Christ's coming is to redeem those who are under the law. But then we see this phrase. You see the phrase, so that? That is the result. He came to redeem so that we might receive adoption as sons. When you think of redemption, I mean, we've named our church Redemption Hill Church. You see this redemption language all throughout Scripture. One of the reasons that we named our church is we wanted it to be a way that as you talk about the name of our church, that it can lead right into the gospel. Christ came to redeem us. And redemption is you were redeemed, you were bought out of slavery by the paying of a price. The way you are redeemed is by the cross. He redeemed those who are under the law. This is, he, in, in Paul's analogy here is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. The way he redeemed us is his sacrificial death on the cross for your sins and mine. And as a result of that, I want you to think about it. Why did Christ die? Our kids, they learn in Transformation Station. Hey, what did Jesus come to do? Christ died to bring us to God. If you've got a kid in Transformation Station, ask them that. They should know the answer to that question. What, what did Christ come to do? Christ died to bring us to God. Why did Christ become a curse? Why did he redeem us? Well, we were sinners. We were by nature children of wrath. When Christ died, he paid the penalty of, of my sin. But as we saw earlier, the reason that it was important that he was a man and lived and fulfilled the law is that we needed a perfect Savior. So Jesus not, on per, not only perfectly kept the law, I am now justified. We've been talking about this language, justified. I am accounted righteous because my sin has been paid for and Christ lived a perfect life. But why? I mean, justification is great, but it actually gets even better. I want to quote J.I. Packer, one of the books that we've got on our resource table and we may be out as, as knowing God. One of the top five books most influential in my life. And he says this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart, heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is a greater. In fact, Packer goes on to say, if he had to sum up the message of the New Testament in three words, it would be this, adoption through propitiation. Get that. The message in the New Testament, adoption through propitiation. Propitiation, Jesus was the wrath-bearing, wrath-exhausting sacrifice that took away our sin. But why do you need your sin taken care of? 
Why do you need your sin forgiven? Why do you need to be justified? Christ died to bring us to God. Sin is the barrier that keeps me from closeness and affection and intimacy with God. The cross removes my sin so that now I can be with God. You see this. You need to get this. You were made to be in relationship with God. We're going to continue to think about this when we think of adoption. But adoption was not plan B in the plan of God. What we see, let me share a few verses here with you. In adoption, not only is it not plan B, listen to this, Ephesians 1. It says, in love you were predestined for adoption. If you were to go to Revelation chapter 21, and you were to read through Revelation 21, the next to last chapter in the Bible, you get down to verses 5, 6, and 7, and God's gonna, he's going to say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty come and drink from the river of life without cost. And he says, and I will be your God, and you will be my son. Guys, the... The whole purpose of the gospel is to make enemies of God and children of wrath, children of God. And this displays the extravagant love of God. When we go to the cross, there are two, two benchmarks that the scriptures give us that testify to the extravagant love of God. One is the cross, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. You see it in the cross. So look to the cross and say, here is love. There's no greater, deeper, higher, truer, wider love. But he also points to adoption. You go to 1 John chapter 3, and he's going to say this. He's going to say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we might be called children of God. You want to see the extravagant love of God displayed? Look to the cross and look to adoption. This is the message of the New Testament. Adoption through propitiation. And if this is true, Jeb Packer says, your entire Christian life should be viewed within the framework of adoption. You are a child of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You may be asking this question, how do I become a child of God? If Ephesians 2, 3 is right, and that I was by nature a children of wrath, how does, a, how does a, someone by nature a child of wrath become a child of God? Well, we've already seen it, and I'll put it up here for you. In Galatians 3, 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Let me show you another one. In John chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Hey, if you're here today, you've been exploring this whole Jesus and Christianity thing, and, and you're saying, you know what? I want this. I want a family. I want a relationship. I want a father. The offer is free. All you've got to do is believe. You confess your sin. You embrace the extravagant love of God displayed in the cross. Jesus died so that 
The word so that you are redeemed, so that you might be a child. And you believe that, you embrace that, you stake your life on that. Today, you can become a child of God through faith. I would plead with you right now, believe. Call upon God. Believe. Place your faith in Him. That leads us to our third truth. We are now children and heirs. Verses 6 and 7 say this. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are now heirs with Christ. Let me give you a parallel passage. Sometime this week, go read through Romans chapter 8. And you're going to see some similar analogies where Paul says, you are heirs with Christ. And here's the truth. God didn't adopt you and treat you like some stepchild. You are united with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Ephesians says you are raised and seated with Christ. You are an heir with Christ. God views you as he views his own son, Jesus. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is the benefit of the gospel. And because you are one with Christ, you have all the benefits. And your inheritance, what's God's? is yours, and God owns it all. And so you want to be rich? You want to have an inheritance? Come and respond to the gospel, and God owns it all, and you have everything. It's great to know that God doesn't leave us in a condition of aliens when he adopts us, but he pours out his spirit into our hearts. Isn't that what it says here? God not only sent his son, what else did he send? His spirit. So what Paul has done here, he's moved from Christology to soteriology to pneumatology. And we see see the whole trinity here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit has been poured out into your hearts. And what is the purpose of the Spirit? The purpose of the Spirit is to give us the experience of being embraced in the family. The Spirit is the sign and pledge of our adoption. It's the way we experience this reality. Intimacy, access, assurance, confidence. By God's pouring His Spirit out in us, we cry out, Abba, Father. Such an intimate, familiar, familial language. So what's Paul's argument here with those in Galatians? We've been talking about justification by faith. It's this. To the Galatians, he's saying, You don't need to go get circumcised and you don't need to be justified by keeping the works of the law because you are already children of God. Live in that. So, how can God's adoption of us be a paradigm for our participation in adoption? As Tanner has already quoted, God commands us to care for orphans. In James chapter 1, it says this, pure religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I want to show you four truths and and we're going to wrap up. Four truths, how God's adoption of us, we can apply to our own pursuit of adoption. And the first one is this, adoption And orphan care is often from very bad situations. Look, I know you've got those little pictures in your worship guide. And you look at those pictures 
And, and these kids look so cute. And I'll be honest with you, you can look at pictures of kids that need to be, you go, you go spend time in an orphanage and they'll just suck your heart in. And I know they can be cute, but I want you to know this. We don't just pursue adoption because a child seems irresistibly cute. Adoptions don't just come from nice, healthy, and safe situations. They're often from bad situations because of a mother's unhealthy lifestyle. Many kids have fecal, um, alcohol syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome. Many, many of these moms have been addicted to drugs, and you see all kind of consequences in these kids from learning disabilities to birth defects to developmental delays. These are kids that need to be adopted. It's not just kids that, man, that don't have any of these issues. A lot of, most of them, a lot of them are from these types of situations. Not only that, many of these kids that are in orphanages have poor nutrition and poor care. Today in our community group, we're going to have an orphan meal. This is it. You know how many orphans this is going to feed? For some of you, this would be maybe your entire meal. This is going to feed six orphans. There are numerous special needs kids that need to be adopted. In fact, in some countries... Special needs kids are the only ones eligible from adoption. Many of you guys know Lee and I are in the process of adoption. We've been in this process for a number of months. We are, have applied, we finished our home study, and are now just waiting to be matched. And we know it'll be a girl from China, and she will have special needs, ranging anywhere from mild to moderate special needs. There are numerous children like that that need to be adopted. So know this, when you go out of your way to adopt a child, especially a child with special needs, you radically display the gospel because God chose what is foolish and weak and despised. That's the gospel, right? None of us were irresistibly cute before God. We were rebellious enemies. And God adopted us. Go do the same. The second truth that I think we can gather is that adoption and orphan care is not a backup plan. Having children by birth and adopting children are both uniquely precious. You may choose to adopt sequentially second, but it doesn't have to be secondary. I mean, we've already seen this. Ephesians 1 from you in love, you were predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world. Adoption was not plan B for God. It was plan A. And look, I know some of you here today, many of you may have wrestled with infertility. Now, let me just address you here. The sadness you feel from that is real. And you know what? It's an example, a tragic result of living in the fall. I mean, we see because of the false sin has not just affected our relationship with God, there's all kind of tragic results in the world we live in, one of that being infertility. And so I want to, man, I want to resonate with you and say, man, man, God delights in fruitfulness and barrenness, but I want to challenge you with two things. First of all, I want to say this, man, ask boldly. Man, as you pray before God, ask boldly that he would give life. God, the father of life would give life to your womb, but know this. Adoption 
is not secondary. And it's not some second-rate solution. Man, it can be plan A for you. And so as you ask boldly, I want to challenge you to surrender completely. And, and I want to pose a question, a tough question, that I want us all to wrestle with, and it's this. Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life, says, do you want most of all to be parents or do you want most of all to be conservators of your genetic material? That's tough, right? With 153 million orphans lined around the world, I mean, for some of you, you may say, you know what, I want to adopt first. As an equal option to having my own biological children. And you talk with Lee and I, and in our adoption, we're not distinguishing between our children and our adopted girl. We have biological children, but they're all our children. So when you say, hey, I want to have my own, an adopted child is your own. It's not some second rate. This adopted girl, we're going to go change our will, and she's going to be right in there as an heir along with our other kids because that is the gospel. When you show through orphan care and adoption that it's not a backup plan, you point people to the gospel, the plan of God from the beginning to make slaves of God, sons of God. Third truth, adoption and orphan care is costly. Financially, most adoptions are costly and will require great sacrifice. If you want to adopt domestically and internationally, you're going to, it's going to cost somewhere of $30,000 plus. I will say this, foster care adoptions, and I want to encourage you to go back to our table. We've got a number of resources back here. Foster care adoption. There are over 600 in Massachusetts right now ready for foster care adoption. It's free. There's often a financial subsidy that will help you, and there's often free college tuition if they go in-state in Massachusetts. But in most cases, it's not just costly financial on the front end. Imagine just adding another child to your family. There are ongoing costs for the rest of your life. Some of them are emotional. I mean, you bring a special needs kid home, it is going to be tough. There are going to be challenges. Let me just challenge some of you. For some of you, you're going to need to let go of some of your financial dreams, maybe the American dream, if you're going to pursue adoption. And I know I'm, I'm probably stepping on some toes here, but when God saves us and he adopts us, he has complete rights to tell us what to do. We are his. For some of you, you're going to need to get into a financial situation. For us, Lee and I, when we decided roughly two years ago that we wanted to adopt, the first thing we did is we got to get our financial household in order. Because if, if we're going to be spending X amount of money and bringing this child home, i got to know where our money's going. I want to tell my money where it's, not, where it's going and not let my money tell me where to go. And for most of us, what I've just observed in people is most people don't live on a budget. They just spend freely and then hope, man, they, they've got something in the bank to cover it or they go into debt. We decided it was a matter of stewardship if we were going to adopt that we needed to get our house in order. And maybe that's what some of you need to do. You need to figure out, hey, where's your money going? And what are you blowing your money on? Because it's going to be costly to adopt. I will say this, there's hope. When I throw 30000 out there, some of you are like, man, there's no, I don't have 30000 laying around. I know many of you have been generous in helping us adopt through our yard sale, through buying t-shirts. There are many grants that are available, and we want to help you. I mean, we're, we're not standing up here some 
rich millionaires that are going to adopt. Man, we're just common people like you, and we're sacrificing to go bring this little girl home. So come talk with us. We want to tell you some ways and help you out. But not only that, it's going to be costly, not just for individuals, but for a church. I'll say this. If a culture of adoption starts happening at Redemption Hill Church, we will face the following issues. What about the three-year-old who knows words that you don't even know? What about the deaf Chinese girl, the handicapped young boy, the autistic child that needs one-on-one attention? What about the kids who's been in the foster care system since birth and has never had a stable home? Look, children's ministry and youth ministry will be messy at Redemption Hill if a culture of adoption and orphan care takes place. And so it's not just individuals, it's a church saying, these kids are not burdens to us. I would even say this, I guarantee you that there are numerous special needs kids in greater Boston sitting at home right now. Why do you think they're home? Because they think if they come to a church today, what are they going to be viewed as? A burden. You're telling me that I've got to give one-on-one care in Transformation Station to this child? No, don't come back next week. So I want to plead with you, church, if we really want to see not just Orphan Sunday, one Sunday of the year, but a culture of adoption happen in our church, I'm, we're going to need men and women say, you know what, I'll go and give one-on-one attention in Transformation Station on a Sunday and care for these orphans and these kids that are coming out of bad situations. And that is a display of the gospel. Things will have to change in our church. We talk about being a church where everyone's accepted. Are these kids welcome and embraced at Redemption Hill? How can we make room for the special needs kid at Redemption Hill? When you sacrifice to care for an orphan, the glory of God is magnified. The last truth. Adoption brings the full rights of being children and heirs. Adoption not only involves a legal standing as a child, but a very personal and intimate relationship. There should be deep, personal, spiritual bonds developed with our kids. And at the same time, I want to be realistic. I know when we go and adopt this little girl from China, she's not just going to show up the next day saying, mommy and daddy. It's going to take time It's going to take labor. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take radical displaying of love with this child. But our desire is that eventually this child would cry out, Mommy, Daddy. And there would be a relationship that mirrors the gospel. This is also why there's no distinction in our family between biological and adopted children. We are giving a child a forever home just like the other three biological children we have. So let me ask you, what step will you take today to begin caring for orphans? Some of you, even as I'm talking, God's impressed on your heart that you may want to pursue adoption or orphan care. You may be a single, not even married yet, and you're saying, man, God's, God's burdening me. I'm going to pray that even as God provides a husband or a wife one day that, that I want to cast this vision. 
Maybe you're married and you've been wrestling with infertility. I want to challenge you, man. This, is a, this, does, this isn't plan B. It can be plan A. Maybe you're, you're married and you have your own biological children. I want to, man, there's a great need for these 153 million orphans. Let me even say this. There's something that's new called safe families. That there's information on the table back here. You may say, you know what? I'm not ready to bring forever a child in my home, but you know what? I could help care for a family for two weeks. You've got moms that are going through all kinds of addictions and drug issues that can't care for their kids because they need to go to rehab. And you're saying, you know what? I'll take a kid for two weeks into my home. I'll be a safe family for two weeks. A kid can come in my home so this mom can go get care and hopefully this child will be restored back to her mom. Look, there are endless possibilities of ways you can care for orphans. Maybe you're on up in age and your kids are on out of the house. What about adopting an older child? And you may also at the same time be thinking, man, this is so overwhelming. Where do I begin? Because you're faced with so many questions. Domestic, international, boy or girl, newborn, older, one child, siblings, does race matter, special needs or healthy? This is why you need to go talk with somebody today. If you're even just having an inkling that God may be working your heart, go see my wife Come see myself. We've got a worker back here, Sandra, that's going to, with Bethany Christian Services, the largest adoption care agency in the U.S., they're, they're stationed out of North Andover that have a table set up back here that can help you because it can be overwhelming. Second, maybe, maybe adopting or foster care is not what God's calling you to do, but maybe you're called to support in a sacrificial way. Maybe it's financial, helping some of these families in our church that want to adopt. Maybe like some of you did for us, it's helping put a fundraiser on or throw in a big yard sale to raise money for adoption. Maybe it's giving time. I mean, as a culture starts at Redemption Hill and you've got multiple families that are adopting, maybe it's coming along a family saying, you know what, I want you and your husband to go out for a date. I'm going to help for the night care for your kids because I know the burden that it is on you. I mean, there are endless ways that as a church we can come along and we can care for orphans. We can all pray. I'll conclude with this. What can we say to a culture that views kids as in the way? Hey, let's put kids off. Go out of your way to add kids to your life. And when you go out of your way to add kids to your life, you are making a strong counter-cultural statement that is driven by the gospel. Man, I, I love the Red Sox parade and the numerous people that came out for it. But what if a battalion of Christian parents got in line for orphan care? Will you do that today? What, God, what is God leading you to do for the sake of God's gospel among the nations? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, First of all, we rest in these truths of adoption. We are no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters. God, you have given us the highest privilege of the gospel. We have a relationship with you. We not only know you, but we are known by you. God, take these truths and redefine our entire lives by the truth that we are adopted by God. God, I pray that we would walk in such a way 
that mirrors these gospel truths. And at the same time, God, I want to see gospel renewal take place at Redemption Hill in such a way that orphan care becomes the culture here. That it's no longer strange to hear about somebody adopting or caring for orphans or providing a safe family. But that, God, this is just what we do. And when the world sees, hey, man, Redemption Hill is making a staggering dent in all of the foster care kids in Massachusetts that we can proclaim our God is great and the father of the fatherless. God, a prayer church would have such an impact with the, with the kids in our county, Middlesex County, and in our state. God, I know you can do this by your spirit. I pray you'd work that in us. In Christ's name, amen.